welcome to Campion Conversations, an informal podcast discussion of pop culture and the liberal arts. My name is Dr. Dre, lecturer in literature at Campion College, Australia. In Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, his titular explorer stops off at an academy of thinkers in the land of Legado, the occupants of which spend their days engrossed in innumerable nonsense experiments, such as inflating dogs and trying to extract sunshine from cucumbers. What Swift was satirising was a relatively new field of study known as natural philosophy, and a group of thinkers and physicians called the Royal Society in particular. The Royal Society had first met on the 28th of November, uh, 1660, and had devoted themselves to their motto, Nullius in Verba, or Take Nobody's Word for It. Their stated goal was to test, to experiment, to verify through practical research the validity of their theorem. They were the beginnings of what we would now know today as modern science. But while their research offered remarkable advancements in knowledge, they pioneered blood transfusions, catalogued the nature of electricity, and observed the celestial movements, they were also, as Swift's parody exhibits, prone to criticism that they were impractical dreamers. To discuss the Royal Society, its creation, its development, and its legacy, I'm joined today by Dr. Luciano Boschiero, lecturer in both history and science, and Dean of Campion College, therefore my boss. Welcome, and thank you for talking to me today. Thank you, Colin. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you perhaps give us a bit of context for the birth of this society? Obviously, my overview was glib and sprawling. Can you give us an idea of what, what was the environment of the age in which the Royal Society first came to be? Well, there's a lot of prehistory to the Royal Society of London. Um, obviously, it was formed in London in 1660, but prior to that, it consisted of a group of natural philosophers who like to meet rather informally just to share their views and ideas and thoughts about experiments. So this all started way back in the mid-1640s. And um, there was a small group of natural philosophers who would meet in London. They would refer them to themselves, it seems, uh, we have several references um, by one or two of them, as the Invisible College. And this would be... A little bit Harry Potter. There, <laughs> a little bit, but uh, I guess there was nothing too sinister or magical about it. Uh, the The idea was they, did, they didn't really have any place to meet. It wasn't a formal society or institution. They would they didn't have any walls, um, and that, I guess, would probably refer to its invisibility. Uh, but I guess also uh, Invisible College, uh, one interpretation is that they... Didn't re- they weren't really controversial. They didn't want to be controversial. Uh, yeah, they just wanted to talk about their experiments and their natural philosophical interests. And that it was a controversial age, yeah. right? Mid-17th century in England for decades now, there'd been a struggle between king and parliament. These guys didn't really want to get involved in any of that. They came from different political backgrounds, but one thing that they would agree on is that that didn't matter. That's so, great. so religions, uh, religion, politics. Uh, once they get together, they just want to share their ideas on natural philosophy. So that that group sort of split up, and once things went wrong in England, I guess with its politics, and the King Charles I was deposed or beheaded, the many royalists at the University of Oxford lost their jobs, wow. and several of these philosophers had to, or were hired at the University of Oxford. So some of them went off to the University of Oxford. They, they continued to have their little meetings, but the group was divided. There was some in Oxford, now there was some in London. And that continued a little bit during the 
1650s. And it's these two separate groups uh, that would eventually come back together uh, once the crown was restored in 1660. Oh. And, and they decided then to form a society and seek a royal charter for it. And it was four years later that they became officially the royal... Society. Yeah, well, you know, initially it, it was it, it was just this group. Again, it had somewhat of an informal nature about it, but they had ambitions for recognition by the king and whatever that might bring, preferably funds, yeah. but that didn't come as, as it uh, turned out. But the king became aware, Charles II became aware of their existence and um, the members of the society were duly informed of that. They then drafted a charter, a, a royal charter, and that was approved in 62. But it wasn't until 1663 that the king agreed to be the patron of the Royal Society of London. And, and that's still the case today. So the, the monarch is still the, the patron of the Royal Society of London. It's the longest continuous scientific institution in the world. And so mm. what was it that drew the, the king's attention to it? Because as he said, it, it seems like only 20 years earlier, it was quite quite an odd thing. What persuaded the king to, to kind of support this? Mainly usefulness. Um, so I guess with Charles II, there were two things, actually. The utility was one, the, the potential utility of a scientific institution. The second, it seems, with Charles II, is that he was just easily amused. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. So he he was very witty, and he <laughs> liked a good laugh. And it, it said that whether it's true or not is is uncertain. But it said that he met with the fellows of the Royal Society before they became the Royal Society, and had a luncheon with them, and just cracked jokes about <laughs> what they did. The, we, we don't know if that's true or not. That's a, sort of a legend. And apparently at this lunch, if it did happen, uh, no one was really sure if he was mocking them or just having a bit of a laugh. Whether it was at their expense or not, they just weren't sure. But he certainly has a track record, Charles II, later, of having that witty, mocking attitude towards the Royal Society of London, even after they were formed. On the other hand, there is the question of utility and their charter and their history and how they, they've talked about their history. The Royal Society of London has historically, over the last 350 years, talked about its very purpose is for for useful knowledge. Uh, so utility of knowledge was central to the Royal Society's purpose early on. And you've got to think about mid-17th century or early mid-17th century politics and society and geopolitics is... Of course, this is a region, Europe, that was in the midst of war in the first half of the 17th century. And natural philosophers were, well, actually not so much natural philosophers, mathematicians were valued for their input into military architecture, right. um, uh, ballistic missile technology. Um, so you know, what angle do you fire a cannon to get the most out of it? Right. Um, so people like Galileo, for instance, that that was his craft. 
before he became famous for his astronomical observations, that's how he made his money, um, by selling his skills as a mathematician for military purposes. And there were other mathematicians and natural philosophers also involved in such things as draining swamps and diverting rivers, again, for military purposes or or political purposes. If you can divert a river away from, you know, your enemy's needs, then that's all the better for you. Then you restrict your trade and prosperity. So... Um, so that idea, yeah. that the perhaps apocryphal idea, I'm not really sure, but that whole idea that, well, we only have Velcro and microwaves and all these things because of military applications, yeah. that's been right back to the very beginning of... Oh, yeah, I look, yeah, the, the, the 20th century wars certainly threw up the opportunity for magnificent technological change, but it, it isn't a phenomenon restricted to the 20th century. And certainly, wow. you know, natural philosophers, mathematicians especially, were recruited in the 17th century into royal courts for that purpose of being useful. Sometimes entertaining, right, but also useful. And, and it's not just in England. There'd be, um, for example, in Italy, natural philosophers would be um, in Tuscany, uh, recruited into the prince's court and um, like to listen to their discourses as he's having a bath, for example. Right? <laughs> just just for entertainment. Um, so while he's yeah. reaching for the loofah, they're all like surrounding his bath <laughs> of chatting. That's about... right. And, wow. and they'd have to be on call for this sort of stuff. Wow. Right? Um, that's their employment. They're not always employed in a university. They're employed in a court. Now, in England, that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, a lot of these guys were employed at universities early on. And when the Royal Society of London was formed, they weren't going to draw a salary from it. The king wasn't promising any money. He didn't, he didn't give any money. And the society fellows thought that they would fund this simply from fees, which was a, a very bad mistake because, of course, no one paid their fees. Yeah. <laughs> right, so so uh, that became very difficult for them. So just, no, yeah. just to clarify, so they didn't... They didn't get any patronage from the from the king. Like there was no money or funds. There was no guarantee that what they pursued, he was going to utilize. So, what was it that they were? What What was the benefit of having the, the king's regard? Was it just a, a kind of a protection, or, or yeah, a protection, ownership? Certainly, with uh, it, it's something consistent with scientific societies and literary societies also in the seventeenth century that oh, they yeah. that they seek protection and that just guarantees or at least assists their con- continuity. If you were the king's men, you know, for, for Shakespeare or something, mm. you, you got some benefits from that. So there was no guarantee of that in um, the royal society? No, well, what it, what it does do for individuals within these societies, it does bring them closer to the king, right? And so there are opportunities there. So influence uh, and... Yeah, the opportunity to see his bathroom, perhaps. Well, perhaps that's in Tuscany, certainly. But I I think, yeah, employment opportunities. And the longer the the society lives on and the greater its fame becomes, it becomes a prestigious thing. Um, So to be a fellow of the Royal Society uh, is no small matter. Um, And uh, even today, I mean, if you're a fellow of the Royal Society of London, you're allowed to sign your name with FRS at the end. Wow. And yeah, you know, to be a, so to be a fellow is is not easy, and it certainly guarantees 
a career. So what were those early years like? I mean, after they kind of got this, uh, they've been established, uh, legitimized, I guess, by the, the king's acknowledgement. Mm. Uh, what, what were those first few decades like? What, what kind of advancements did they make? What impact did they have upon society? Yeah, well, upon broader society, um, probably not a lot. For the future of natural philosophy, there is certainly a great deal to say about the Royal Society of London. In those early years, I mean, they must have had enough of an impact to be mocked, as I mentioned in the intro, by uh, Swift. I mean, they were mm. you know, familiar enough with people to be uh, at least a source of satire, perhaps derision, but, but certainly people were familiar enough with them uh, to kind of acknowledge that that was what he was patronising. Was that a generally held conception, that they were something a little bit silly or, or that people didn't understand actually the importance of what they were doing or pursuing? Yeah, so outside of the Royal Society of London, there's certainly a perception that what they're doing is of no use to anyone. What they would be doing would be experiments on, um, a lot of experiments on air, such as um, barometric experiments, mm-hmm. um, experimenting with a vacuum, whether you can actually create a vacuum. And the Royal Society of London was, was famous, again, mainly amongst natural philosophers for, for creating an experiment in which they could you know, extract air from a jar uh, and then experiment with that, you know, with that space. Um, so does, for instance, sound carry in a vacuous space? Uh, you know, how long can an animal live in a vacuous space? So, not yeah, long. Well, apparently, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, they weren't the only ones doing this sort of stuff in Italy, France. Again, the, these were the types of questions that scientists asked themselves: um, whether a vacuum is possible. And of, of course, if it is possible, then that defies Aristotelian mm. logic, um, Aristotelian philosophy. It also, uh, um, at the very least, complicates. Cartesian natural philosophy, which insists that you know um, atoms fill the universe, um, there are no empty spaces. So it's for them important to do yeah. this sort of work. And look, they did a whole lot of other stuff. Is it just an issue of translation? Then I mean, obviously, what they're doing, and we would look back on that mm. and say uh, that's phenomenal. But it, mm. was it just about translating to the public what it was that they were doing? Or? Yeah. So look, this this very point about air was what Charles II himself mocked. And if you think about it from the point of view of, view of an outsider contemporary, mm. um, Charles II is fighting wars, he's building palaces or whatever. I mean, he's got the, all these worldly problems and he's got this group of philosophers you know, stuffing around yeah. weighing air. Look, right? at this, <laughs> look at this empty jar. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so it's just, from his point of view, it's something to mock and laugh at. And he's not the only one, as it turns out. Sure, um, there's Gulliver's Travels uh, later on, but even in the 1660s, Thomas Shadwell wrote a um, piece of theatre um, called The Virtuoso, in which the Royal Society is also mocked in one scene of that play they come across a um, natural philosopher who is trying to 
see how he could best swim on dry land by <laughs> imitating the movements of frogs. Uh, <laughs> so this this guy is sort of swanning or or frogging around the room, um, and it's obviously absurd. Mm. Um, but that's exactly the sort of stuff that they looked at: animal motion, especially if if you're an anatomist and physiologist in the late seventeenth century. There were many of those hanging around the Royal Society of London and the other scientific academies in Europe. You'd be interested. You'd be interested in cutting open a frog and yeah. seeing how its legs moves, right? But from the point of view of an outsider, who cares? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? it's, it's not going to change anyone's lives. It's not, going to, it's not going to reduce your taxes. It's not going to help you win any wars. It's not going to you know, help the streets be safe at night. <laughs> right? So, sure. so these guys are being paid by their universities and they're being given all this honour and prestige within this society. For what? Yeah. For doing stuff which for the rest of the world, non-natural philosophers just seems absurd well of course i mean it starts with derision but all too swiftly turns into fear so uh, i mentioned gulliver's travels but of course it's not that much later that you see a a book like uh, mary shelley's frankenstein which is depicting you know natural philosophy this you know burgeoning science as something terrifying as something potentially that that carries with it uh this ghastly violation of the natural order when when do you do you get a sense of when that started to change, where people's perceptions of this pursuit of knowledge turned perhaps uh, ominous? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think that's always been there, to be honest. I, I, I don't know or I don't think that at any point uh, the, that public perception of science uh, grew out of nowhere. There was, or, prior to the establishment of the Royal Society of London and other scientific institutions, um, there were many what were referred to as natural magicians. Yeah, yeah so these would be uh, alchemists, astrologers. You know, from, like fortune tellers and things who were trying to... Well, see, so we would call them fortune tellers today, perhaps. Um, when we think of astrology, we think of the back page of the news and absurd stories about our future for the following week you know you'll meet your life partner um yeah. and i think one twelfth of the population yeah. is probably going to have a very similar week on any given yeah. right yeah. um but that wasn't astrology in the um middle late middle ages and renaissance astrology was was serious stuff you know you, you see a comet moving across the sky there there must be some divine reason for that right there's, there's a reason that God shot that comet across the sky. And usually you can, if you observe the comet and know these things well, um, you you would be able to work out the significance of that celestial phenomenon. So if its tail is pointing in a specific direction, it might mean the destruction of a country. Right. right. For example, you know, Tycho Brahe, um, a Danish astronomer, um, observed a comet in 1577, predicted for his king that that was the um, that the direction of its tail would indicate the natural destruction of the king's enemies. You know, new stars forming, well, stars you, you dying. Can't, you can't keep me hanging on that. <laughs> Did it come true? Uh, it? No. Ah, <laughs> right. Okay. No, but that. Sure, that doesn't mean the whole of astrology falls over if no. one prediction isn't true. 
you know that you can you can still carry on with your craft and then the other side of this is is alchemy right so understanding all of nature's elements and how they mix and what what magic can occur from from their mixing and um, of course if you're an adept at alchemy then you may be able to have the power uh, that everyone desires is to, to turn base metals into gold um, and that that was not an incredible you know stupid idea right it was right. It, it was something that was cutting edge science yeah th- these things happened so there were there were natural magicians you know wandering the earth and the 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 awesome power of natural knowledge i think was known and to feared, men perhaps and and perhaps feared yeah right if yeah. if there can be terrible consequences uh, uh from you know, odd natural phenomena, uh, then oh. sure, there's something to be feared. So, look, I, I think that that was always there. Um, I think in, you know, with, with Frankenstein, we're seeing um, when that was written, I think, early 19th century. Mm-hmm. By that time, we've got, I think, a new wave of, or a new, new manifestation of that same fear, mainly... Because, at least in Frankenstein's case, so in electricity, the work that Franklin did and that the Royal Society of London was also involved in sponsoring in the late 1700s and early 1800s, that has great consequences in the minds of many, right? That you can manipulate nature to mm. this extent, that you can create life out of inanimate body parts. I mm. mean, Violate death itself. I mean, regather the remains of death and return life to it. That's right. And if you think about it, it, it's not just Frankenstein. I mean, um, Goethe's Faust. uh, It's a very different story to Frankenstein, obviously. But that also plays on the same notion of the power of knowledge, right? And the the pursuit of knowledge and Mm. how dangerous that can be. So um, Faust is willing to give up everything in order to know everything. Mm. You know, he gives up his soul in order to, to know all. So the, the scientists in pursuit of knowledge, uh, like Frankenstein, mm. is actually a potentially dangerous being. Well, is that because that, of course, continues today in contemporary sci-fi has usually got some kind of paranoia about AI. That idea mm. of science investing artificial intelligence with uh, self-awareness and then it will run amok and terminators will get sent back and all that stuff. But but that too, as you said, is about that, that fear that we have apparently ingrained in us uh, from the very beginnings of natural philosophy that scientists won't actually take the time to consider what their actions uh, may lead to in, the, in that pursuit of knowledge that they'll let the genie out of the bottle and we'll all have to deal with it. Yeah, well... Yes and no. It's not always the case. One thing that the early Royal Society fellows took very seriously was that their knowledge was in pursuit of God, right? Um, really? That's right. Yeah. So, okay. look, there are there are two ways of hubristically, or oh no, no. Well, arguably yes, but not in their minds. I mean, this is legitimate theology. Right. Uh, so there are two ways of knowing god one is through reading the bible and the other one is through reading the book of nature right mm. god created the natural world all we're doing is 
coming into contact with that natural world and experientially knowing it. So this, this in the early 17th century, this is, this is Francis Bacon's idea, right, that you know, th- this is how you come to, to know God, but more importantly for humanity, it's the way of man restoring himself before the fall. So, you know, if the end of the world is near then it's time that humanity get itself into shape. And the way to do that, right? we know the Bible, we know what it says, but we need to be in harmony with God's creation. Okay. Right? So it's harmony. It's not taking the, the keys to the to the universe and kind of running wild. No, it is it is harmony. It, and that, that means a dominion. Right. right? It doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean a destructive domination of it. Right? It doesn't mean raping the earth. And I think that's often a misinterpretation of Bacon and Baconian thought in the 17th century, that these guys really want to run amok, and that's the beginning of the end, right? In yeah. The environmental challenges we have now are a result of Bacon's um, misogynistic, hum- human-centred uh, uh, philosophy. But it, that wasn't the thinking. The, the thinking was, no, we need to reach a harmony with the natural world. And and the the more we know about the natural world, the more we know about its minerals, the more we know about the stars and how they move, the more we know about the, the connections throughout the universe, right? The, the mystical harmonies that connect base metals to the stars every, and humans in the middle, right? Everything's connected. The more we get to know that, the more, the closer we come to God, right? Um See that's and, fantastic, yeah. but it's it's funny how when that gets tr- gets translated through our paranoias into literature, it turns mm. into not a harmony with God, but a I am a God. Yeah, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, am yeah. become the creator. Yeah, yeah. That's... Again, Frankenstein. Yeah, that's right. And look, and there, there are many other examples. I mean, Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde, Absolutely, as well, yeah. is, is yeah. another guy. But again, that's that's later, and I think that's late nineteenth century when Robert Louis Stevenson wrote that book, and that's another example of a genius. Like he's a very intelligent doctor whose knowledge just gets out of control, and he mm. creates this monster, and he can he can't really rid himself of the monster, which is just the other side of his own personality but it's his knowledge of medicine and science that has taken him there but those are those are 19th century fears right that you know by then we've dropped a lot of people have dropped the notion that god has a role to play in our accumulation of knowledge Mm. by the end of the 19th century we're talking post-darwin and you know the, the growth of these materialistic theories of of nature which slowly sort of pushed god to the yeah. sidelines right he's no longer relevant to the pursuit of knowledge and sure what and what happens is you know our fears really grow yeah. <laughs> right. but for the early royal society that 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 wasn't a fear right the, the intention is the baconian at least that's what they state mm. right? that's what they tell us that that what they want to do is the baconian project Right, this this isn't just knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's it's knowledge to to bring humanity closer to God, and they run a series of lectures on on these issues as well to pursue harmony with God in the universe. Yeah, yeah, it's a real blending of science and religion um, that's often forgotten or misunderstood or not known today. Maybe changing gears a little bit. Is there any particular 
experiment or, or, or path of inquiry that stands out to you personally as particularly fascinating in, in these kind of experiments in the Royal Society? It doesn't have to be uh, a legitimate advance in understanding it, but it can just be something outlandish or unforgettable. Um, yeah, I think... Well, I've certainly personally been very interested in experiments to do with air and also astronomy, I think, has always been fascinating for me. Uh, And not always in the English context, um, but also more so, I would say, in the continental context. Something that the Englishmen often admired about the continent was some of their experiments on water as well as air and the different things that water can do in different conditions so when it's frozen for example when it's heated or or what's the difference between water and 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 mercury or other you know other liquids do they make different sounds when they splash on different materials right you know so if you pour water on a rock will it sound different to when you pour mercury on a rock? I, mean, I imagine it would, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, yeah. The, on the continent, they're fascinated with this stuff, and the Englishmen uh, receive all of that, all of the experiments that are conducted there, and and repeat many of them. Look, there there are many others um, that always captured my attention. The, the Royal Society of London. Um, something else that they worked on was on. Mechanics and and the atomistic properties of nature. You know, the, the whole world is made up of tiny particles, and you know, your job as a natural philosopher is to know what those particles look like and um, how they move and how they interact with each other. Right. And um, if you're a mathematician, then you can work it all out mathematically. Right? There's there are forces at play. Right? Just like two balls bumping into each other. You, you you know if you work out the velocity the mass the direction um then you can work out what's happening and this this has some interesting consequences for research in the late 17th century when you get people like robert hook who's a curator of experiments at the royal society of london gets his hands on a microscope and looks at say a fly and sees there's all these tiny dots all over it that you can't see with the naked eye. And he says, well, let's see, this is... I can see the atomistic structure of this being. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, you know, then they start asking themselves questions. Well, is that it? Because really what happens... You know, is the atom divisible? So, you know, can I... You know, find the smallest part, but then break it up even further into smaller parts. Mm. So is really what you're seeing through a microscope the end, or is there more behind even that? And so these these philosophical questions really consume many of them, right? Because wow. there's not always an observational solution to, yeah. to these sorts of questions, and they become hard to deal with for a society that, only wants to deal with observations. Right? That's yeah. that's their thing. They don't, Getting into that speculative world. They don't, kind of, yeah. Well, speculative is a word. They don't want to speculate. Yeah. Uh, it's that that's controversial, right? They don't want to. They don't want to be controversial. Just like the Invisible College, yeah. especially in Restoration England, you, you just don't want to. You don't want to get on the king's bad side. So, 
So something you don't want to do is speculate in politics, but that's easy if you're a natural philosopher. But the other thing is you just don't want to speculate full stop mm. because you, you just get enemies and your enemies could easily just knock you over if your speculations are flimsy. Um, on the other hand, if you're dealing with knowledge that is experiential, transferable, right, you can you can write down your experiments on some paper, describe it, detail, step-by-step construction of the instruments, send it off to Florence and they can replicate that same experiment, then that's almost irrefutable. Yeah. Right? What you're producing is, is something that, that can be replicated and therefore not refuted. So they're very wary of, of the power of um, observational knowledge as, as an authority for knowledge. So... By the you know, late 1660s, this this is what they really want to emphasise when they're getting mocked by Charles II. You know, as Thomas Shadwell is writing his um, mocking play and there's whispers all around town that this is a society of just useless <laughs> philosophers. They're not producing anything. You know, they publish a book on the history of the Royal Society of London, you know, late 1660s. They're barely yeah, eight years history, old yeah. and they're publishing a book on the history of the Royal Society of London because it's a bit of propaganda. Right? That's, that's when they emphasise, you know, we are Baconians, yeah. right? There's a purpose behind what we do. Even if it looks silly to you, outsiders, you know, um, who don't have any appreciation of what we do. And that, um, that, that purpose is the defining quality of this institution and our methods, observational, experimental, are our sort of stamp of authority. Do you, do you see anything in today's society that, that you can trace directly back through that lineage, like something that represents the, the original spirit of uh, the Royal Society? Well, look, I think scientific institutions, um, as they exist today, they're very different things to what they were nearly in the late 17th century. But undoubtedly, yeah, we have scientific institutions that were born out of out of the Royal Society of London, um, uh, Royal Society of London still exists. And there's the Parisian Academy of Sciences and, the, and there's the British Academy of Sciences and there's all sorts of other scientific societies devoted to specific uh, disciplines and sub-disciplines. And all of them, and they work in networks, right? Many of them network. And I think that's probably the defining uh, or a defining characteristic of scientific institutions today. So they don't, usually work in isolation mm. right but they they attempt to network as much as possible one of the sort of 20th century principles of science defined by um, Robert Merton the sociologist of science is that that scientists are by nature um, communalists right that they they want to share they have to want to share if they, if they don't want to share they're not really contributing anything to the enterprise and certainly there there seems to be an element of that in That's the right. 1660s right and for example you know the, the journal publications the royal society starts a journal the philosophical transactions or rather it started by the secretary of the royal society of london but it it's in a way owned by the royal society um, many of its fellows contribute to it, uh, but they also take contributions from the continent, right? So you know, many of the most esteemed natural philosophers of Europe 
also want to be published in the philosophical transactions. And there are many examples of uh, articles being published in England in the Phil Trans in English and then published in translation in France, hmm. right, or vice versa. Uh, so um, I, th- I think that sense of community networking, so, so that emphasis on networking, forming something on, on the back of the Republic of Letters of the Renaissance and this sort of attempt to share information through postage, yeah. <laughs> really, right? You, you send letters, you send books, you send your notes, um, you send your friends news about the books that are about to come mm. out. And I think in the Royal Society of London and, and the other scientific institutions from 1660s onwards, that, that just continues, that, that sense of... of camaraderie as it were. And a stark, mm. I mean, just to torturously tie it back into Frankenstein again, mm. a stark contradiction to Frankenstein who didn't seek out that kind of community, who went off on his own in pursuit of, you know, the older kind of science, the more the alchemy. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Things go wrong for him, don't they? Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, perhaps as a way to to end uh, the discussion or kind of round up the discussion, uh, I wanted to ask you again about Gulliver's Travels, satirising the uh, Royal Society. What did you see was really Swift's criticism there or, or what he was trying to, to represent? Yeah, Swift had the, the same sort of criticism that we saw from Shadwell uh, in that from the outsider's point of view, a lot of what's being produced at the Royal Society of London is useless, um, far from useful as they claim to be. Mm. Uh, You mentioned in your introduction that you're uh, extracting some beans from cucumbers. I like that one. It's also the the least gross of of many of the... I mean, there's dissecting, uh, you know, excrement to try and get, yeah. To try and get, sort of reverse the process, get the food out of the excrement. Or the one I find the most horrifying is the, he's basically describing a a computer, uh, like a a computer that would randomly vomit up words that that no one need think about what they're actually speculating on anymore. (laughs) They just use this sort of word salad. No, and and one day they might become useful as great works. Just just as one day all those sunbeams that are filed away might... Might become useful as well. Um, I mean, you know, softening marble that you might one day oh, use as pillows, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, what's the other one? Um, identifying paint colors by smell, yes. right? And I think it's a it's a blind <laughs> scientist who's working on this, and, and he, he makes this remark about you know it's not quite working out for him. And you can just imagine, you just imagine this guy who's covered in paint and he's just sniffing. <laughs> It's just getting worse and worse as he's the more he sniffs. So th- there's one comment in that section of um, Gulliver's Travels where he's talking to one of the scientists, and the scientist says something like, "Oh, you know, no one outside of here really understands what we're what we're doing. They all they all deride us, but you know, um, such is the such is life, really. That you know, these non-experts think that they can." comment and they, they, they just drag us down and i think that that probably reflects the attitude quite accurately right i mean he's swift himself <laughs> mocking, yeah. mocking them and imagining what their retort would be right <laughs> oh you don't understand right but in the end where the reader is the outsider and we're seeing how absurd they are yeah. right and i was talking about the military 
purpose or the military usefulness of these um, of of natural knowledge. Of course, the the greatest military purpose that the Grand Academy has, um, or the whole island has, is that they can throw rocks from yeah. because they float over their enemies yeah. and they can just throw rocks or just drop uh, down and crush them. If they like. yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. but obviously that's not going to be very useful. <laughs> right? So, so they think it's this great military device, but. You know, we're reading this and we can see that it's just, they're, they're dumb, right? Yeah. It's just not going to work. So, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's beyond the 1660s, obviously um, 1720s. But in that time, you know, we've had some geniuses in the Royal Society of London, Robert Boyle, Robert Hooke, Isaac Newton, and the work that they produced was ingenious. Hmm. But not many people really understood it, right? Yeah. So you, you could read Newton's Principles of Natural Philosophy and not have a clue what it refers to, right? I mean, if you if you're just even if you're a well-educated gentleman, and that was the problem for much of Newton's life. I, mean, I don't think he really cared that much, but um, not many people really understood yeah. what his theories about universal motion were. Uh, and so from, again, the outsider, uh, for most Englishmen, it just looks like silly mumbo-jumbo, right? It's, it's not really doing anything. It's not mm. producing nothing. As I said, it's not going to help us win any wars or cultivate more agricultural goods or, or solve illnesses um, or find medicine. Or, or get those sunbeams out of the cucumbers. Some, uh, when there's inclement weather, wouldn't yeah, you want yeah. those sunbeams, wouldn't you? <laughs> Oh, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Um, If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do subscribe. We have new episodes every other week. And if you like what we're doing here, please do give us a review on iTunes. Those five-star reviews really do help. I want to thank Dr. Luciano Boschiero for joining me here today, and we will be back next time for another Campion Conversation. We hope you can join us then. This episode is brought to you by The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. If you've ever longed to drift away into a nostalgic, romanticised vision of a bucolic English riverside, but you really wish that it could only be populated by an assortment of diseased vermin and deranged amphibians dressed in human clothes, then why not try The Wind in the Willows? Join characters like Rat and Toad and Badger and any other number of feral rats for adventures that will at least require a tetanus booster and a course of antibiotics, and that at worst might be some kind of grotesque affront to the very idea of human civilization. The Wind in the Willows, a tranquil tale of close friendships and polite manners, as depicted by pond dwellers, rabies carriers, and an escaped convict toad with a fetish for Grand Theft Auto. Campion Conversations is a production of Campion College of the Liberal Arts, Australia.